Hello and welcome to Adam and Eve on CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton and around the world on CJSR.com. My name is Rose Eva Forge Jenkins. My name is Louis. My name is Adam Mornchak. My name is Wen Chan. And my name is Michelle Dang. And we'll be your hosts for today's episode of Adam and Eve. Thanks for joining us for our special year in review episode. Adam and Eve is Edmonton's only feminist news radio show. We are adamant on highlighting, discussing, and engaging with issues that affect women across Edmonton and around the world. For today's episode, we will be looking back on the past year. It was a wild ride for sure. Starting last January, Michelle and Roseva kicked off the year with Professor of Law Ubaka Ogbagu. Here we discussed how Indigenous peoples are impacted by the Canadian healthcare and law systems and how Indigenous sovereignty is connected. Dr. Ogbagu was Michelle's professor last year. What drew you to invite Dr. Ogbagu onto the show, Michelle? Dr. Ogbagu was one of my um, health law and ethics professors. So when he came and taught us about like the healthcare system, that was kind of the first time that I, I guess, like properly learned about kind of like the mechanics of how racism towards um, Indigenous peoples is kind of like literally built into our system. And I think just for a country that prides itself so much on I guess, like having free and accessible healthcare for everyone. Um, I just think it's important that people know about this kind of stuff so that we can be critical of ourselves and this country and kind of work to fight against it. Yeah, that's super interesting. So now let's hear a clip from that interview. Uh, So I view law as a determinant of health for Indigenous peoples. And it comes back to the way we've set up the law in Canada for how to receive healthcare. So in essence, the way it works is this. Indigenous health is handled largely and primarily by the federal government. That is because the federal government has jurisdiction over indigenous peoples when it comes to healthcare and uh, most other things under our constitution. So this is the sort of the rough structure of it. Now, the way this has been, this way, the way this works is if you're an indigenous person who lives in an indigenous nation on reserve, the federal government is responsible for your healthcare. However, if you leave off reserve, because of this arrangement they have with the provinces, the provinces will take care of your health care. So there's these jurisdictional uh, differences depending on where you leave. That sort of creates a first problem, if you think about it. Uh, If you live on reserve, the federal government, which is the level of government that is furthest away from you, controls and delivers health care to you. That then leads to a situation where the health care is inevitably substandard and not adequate. The level of government that is furthest away from you cannot possibly provide something to you in a way that makes any sense. And many of the problems that arise around indigenous health stem from this fact. Now, the provinces will provide health care for persons who live off reserve. The quality of health care we receive is better, you know, if we're getting it from the provinces, uh, as you and I are subject to. So if you're an indigenous person who lives off reserve, so you live in Edmonton, then presumably you're getting the same level of healthcare that we're getting. However, that forces you to leave your community. Now, if you want to leave your community and go live in Edmonton, it shouldn't be because of healthcare. But many indigenous uh, persons who, because of healthcare, leave their communities to come to somewhere where they can get better access. But even within our healthcare system in the provincial setup, they face serious discrimination in terms of the healthcare they receive. It's because the law has set it up this way that then leads to this sort of bifurcated way that they receive healthcare and all the problems that come with it. And you just heard from law professor Ubaka Ogbagu, 
and Adam and Eve contributors Rosiva Forks Jenkins and Michelle Dang talk about the convergence of Indigenous sovereignty and the Canadian law and healthcare systems. I sure learned a lot from that conversation. Next in the lineup of amazing guests, we were honored to share the voices of local Indigenous activists. Today, Indigenous land and water defenders and protectors are still fighting for their right to their own lands against state violence and capitalist extractive industries. In context of this show, the rise of the blockades and land defense on Unistodden and Wet'suwet'en was a key topic of discussion. We would like to restate the importance of the needed ongoing support, allyship, and work as accomplices in the present fight against land occupation that is happening in so-called Canada and globally. Stay tuned to hear first from Dr. Don Lavelle Harvard talk about the connection between the missing and murdered women, girls, and two-spirit with the resource extraction industry. Then we will shift gears to hear from Randy Monkman about their story of activism and ties to land defense. So I was wondering if you could speak on the intersection of this idea of like pipelines and the man camps associated with pipelines Mm -hmm. and the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls inquiry. Well, this is something that we have really been trying to open everybody's eyes to, trying to shine a light on this, that when we started doing work on human trafficking, and that's something that that wasn't even a term in people's vocabulary 10 years ago when we started having these conversations. And that's something that when they're putting through pipelines or when they're putting in these large-scale developments, companies have to have harm reduction. They have to have mitigation plans for, you know, the hognose snake or the alvar grasslands. But nobody's talking about, you know, what is your plan to mitigate the harm that's going to happen to the local Indigenous peoples, to the local women and children in these territories when these pipelines come through and these camps end up in our territories. You know, those companies are just as responsible for what's happening in their camps as they are for the destruction that these pipelines going through are going to have on the, on the grasslands or the local animals, the, you know, species at risk. This is something that if the government wanted to be truly responsible, not just talking about environmental degradation, but talking about that risk to the local human population in terms of the exploitation that comes along with these camps. And those companies should have to have a plan for how they're going to mitigate that, for how they're going to address that violence and that abuse, that you know, essentially criminal activity that's going on right within their own businesses, within their own camps. And they're right now, up until now, we've seen that they're largely turning a blind eye. You can't tell me that they don't know that when a woman is brought into these camps, into you know, that that's not what's going on. Frida Hassan or Hewson, uh, that is one of the matriarchs that was arrested. They were actually doing a ceremony at the time of being arrested um, to honor, the ceremony was to honor missing and murdered Indigenous women. And I saw this photo that was taken by Amber Bracken, and it's, it was taken on February 10th, 2020, and it shows a police officer violating ceremonial protocols, and it shows him walking away holding this drum. <laughs> and when I look at this, it just looks so wrong to see these these men going into these camps and forcibly removing these peaceful land defenders that are doing just one thing, defending the land. That's all it is. And carrying that drum that, that means so, so, so much to my peoples, 
culture and ceremony. It's just heartbreaking to see that. Actually going back to the um, Wet'suwet'en, Sequetmik territory and Gidimintin, and even the rallies and protests that I've been to, is that everybody is unarmed. But we have these troops showing up completely armed with assault rifles, police dogs, but we're all peaceful and we have one thing but love in our hearts and it's for the land. And this doesn't just, it's not just for our generations, it's for the generations ahead of us too. And one thing, that's one thing that um, Indigenous people have always emphasized, even with the signing of the treaties. We have this seven generational thinking where we're always thinking ahead of the future generations. And there is no need for, for the violence that the Canadian government and the RCMP are inflicting on Indigenous people. Thank you so much to Dr. Don Lavo Harbour and Randy Mogman for their insights on particular contention issues of resource extraction and Indigenous activism. Moving into March, the racism and xenophobia arising from COVID-19 led us to bring public health epidemiologist Stephanie Booth onto the show. This episode happened before the lockdowns and quarantine took into effect here in Edmonton. And in hindsight, we were definitely uncertain of how the pandemic would have unfolded. It is a disgrace how the UCP has maintained a focus on attacking labor rights, attacking public education, and disregarding healthcare workers during these times. Anyways, let's hear about how racialization of COVID-19 highlighted existing racism and xenophobia. Also, be on the lookout for our future episode in March celebrating an anniversary of COVID-19. Then, we will discuss the new realities one year into the pandemic in Edmonton. One of the myths is that coronavirus came from following certain customs, therefore mm -hmm. it's a punishment or it's like a result of it. Yeah, yeah. So when I was looking into some of the common myths or common discourse in the media around this, it's interesting because you can kind of see how certain myths bucket into different like racist tropes. So for coronavirus, one of the myths that was circulating a lot was that it came from people eating bat soup and specifically from Chinese people eating bat soup. There's always been this very odd way that white people especially view like Asian ways of eating and Asian food customs. And so part of that is like feeding into that larger othering of people in Asia where people in the West, specifically white people, are saying that however people have different customs, that's very other and that's weird. And this larger kind of discourse around the food that people eat, this bat soup myth, which is not true. Uh, it's a respiratory disease. You can't get it from like eating bat soup. That's not a thing. Part of this had to do with the media coverage of where we assume that the first cases came from, which was the open air market in Wuhan, and just the media portrayal of, oh, this is an, an open market and it's so unsanitary and there's animals screaming in the streets and that sort of thing, which I think is ironic too, because we're so used to, specifically with our food system in Canada, it's like very sanitized, when in fact we have a system that also is very violent to animals and, and mass production and slaughter, but we're so far removed from it that it's easier for people to pass judgment on someone because they don't know where their own food comes from. Thank you so much to Stephanie Booth for highlighting how COVID-19 has become racialized and debunking myths about COVID-19. We remember the night of the show's release, that the university closed down and moved classes online. What timing? Speaking for myself, the impacts of quarantine and the precarious nature of life, financial stressors, and the toll on our mental health hit hard. 
the Adam and Chief team took a break to take care of ourselves in this time. And we hope all who are listening have found support systems and care for themselves and their communities. It has been hard to find motivation yet make radio sometimes, but we're glad to have this outlet to connect with you. After this break, we slowly but surely kicked back into radio making gears with relatively more lighthearted content with Studio Ghibli. Here, Autumn Moranchok, Michelle Dang, and Wen Chan shared their favorite Ghibli films and how these films have become reachable ways to discuss feminism, environmentalism, and community through a non-Western lens. Let's take a gander. Yeah, I feel like with um, like all Studio Ghibli characters, but especially with No Face, it really humanizes um, like villains in these movies. You can classify them as um, like really complex. They're neither good nor bad. You can see the nuance of, I guess, their humanity that is really brought forward in these films. Yeah, I also really thought that too, when like with Spirited Away and with some of the other ones as well, like I kind of love that there's nobody who's like fully bad. And I kind of think that's important. I think so often in like North American kind of cartoons or fairy tales, it's very like cut and dry of like who's a hero and who's a bad guy. Yeah, like the one thing that draws me really close to Studio Ghibli is just uh, the, the characterization. So do you guys consider like Spirited Away or any of the other movies, would you consider them like, like a feminist film? Do you think there's some feminist kind of underlying ideas going on there? What are your thoughts about that? Heck yeah, for me. <laughs> I, well, I haven't seen all the films, but I think most majority of them um, center female-led characters and protagonists. And it might be a cultural thing where the films kind of promote values of family and, and that kind of collective um, over the individual. But I think a lot of times, a lot of how, how caretaking and how caring for others is wrapped up in Western film. Um, it's really feminized. And here it's laid out to be just a human characteristic that is super valuable and super integral to the storyline and how the characters find um, whatever they're looking for, whether that's belonging or friendship or finding your own place in the world. Sliding into October, we talked about how relationships seen in the Twilight series by Stephanie Myers has been impactful for young readers in not-so-healthy ways. We talked about the importance of recognizing how an author's background can impact how characters are written and how we can be critical of problematic tropes seen in media, especially for youth. That the relationship is depicted can be kind of dangerous to people who are reading it who perhaps have not been in like a serious relationship before or like, you know, aren't being talked to about like what a serious relationship is. Because one thing that I find concerning throughout all of the books and movies is that, yeah, like Bella is fully consumed by this relationship to the point of where like she doesn't really see her other friends. And like, you know, uh, when she chooses to become a vampire, she's okay with like leaving her mother and father behind and never seeing them again because she's decided that she needs to be with Edward. And um, in New Moon, one Edward... Uh, breaks up with her because she gets hurt at her birthday party there's like the, that shot where she's like sitting in a chair wearing the same clothes for like five months and she like doesn't move and she's like so depressed and has like night terrors and all this kind of stuff and not saying that I think um, people can have those very real emotions after a breakup and that's totally valid but to depict it that it's almost like 
she has to feel this way or like as a woman you have to be so brokenhearted by someone leaving you that you can't move on like the only way she's able to like pick up the pieces also is through like her friendship with another male love interest and so it's like she's not able to figure stuff out for herself or heal for herself from when they are broken up which I think is unfortunate because it really makes it about that like your relationship to a boy is like everything and it's the only thing that matters. After talking about codependent relationships seen in Meyer's Twilight, we recognize y'all have likely become tired of hearing only from us for a while. So with a new queer Filipinx youth-run cafe opening in Southgate Mall, we interview co-founders of Intent Coffee, Reka Heradura and Mavi as Atalentino. Here we discuss the colonial implications on the Philippines, how queer immigrants of color struggle to find community in our city, and how Intent Coffee is working on decolonizing coffee and creating safe, accessible, and inclusive queer spaces. Yeah, we had to carve out our own way because not a lot of Filipinos, queer, young, first-gen Filipinos do this because like what Mavi said, we're conditioned to just be workers. We're conditioned to be exported. We're conditioned to be overworked and to have someone above us mm-hmm. and one thing is that like there's like 4,000 Filipinos leave our country every single day to get exported into foreign lands to be laborers but why don't we see Filipinos thriving in those lands right like why don't we see Filipinos who are owning something or we don't even have a cultural center here in Alberta and we have 120,000 Filipinos that live here why do Ukrainian people have it, right? Like, like we've been here. <laughs> um, and there's Chinatown, there's all the representation of other like Asians, East Asian countries, but not us. Mm-hmm. And it's because of the color of our skin. And that comes with the history of colonization. I guess like talking from, um, <clears throat> talking about colonization and your work here with, um, with decolonizing coffee, do you want to talk a bit about what that looks like and what it means to you in practice. One way to control a population, like a group of people, is to control their food systems. Um, and us taking like control and like have our representation through coffee is, is a huge step for us because we're finally like benefiting from the trade that from the products that grow from our ancestral lands, from our native lands, and like having a say in that. Yeah. And that's how you, at least I personally reclaim my cultural identity is through food, because if we reclaim the food, we also reclaim the people and the, the culture that comes with that. And in terms of Instagram, you can follow us at intentcoffee.yag. What an inspiring duo. Thank you so much, Mavi and Reka. January is a slow month, especially for independently owned local businesses. Please consider supporting Intent Coffee and other local businesses during this time, whether it is by sharing their social media, talking about their services with your friends and family, or financially supporting them. Um, Before we knew it, the infamous fund drive was upon us. We want to thank each of our supporters for continuing to support community radio, especially through a pandemic. Our existence cannot happen without you, and we're happy to be able to continue making new radio. In the end of November, we hit the brakes to talk to free transit Edmonton organizer, Caitlin Hart. 
we discuss the intersections between the feminization of poverty and how the right to moving in our city are intertwined. Let's hear a snippet from that conversation. Good to hear your thoughts about how women and feminism connects with free transit Edmonton and free transit in general. For sure, yeah. Um, I mean, the first thing that came to mind when I started to think about this was just like the gendered nature of poverty or um, what's sometimes called the feminization of poverty, which really economists and uh, sociologists and stuff started thinking about in the 70s and then kind of throughout the 90s, we became more familiar with it culturally. Um, so I think we can point to really like neoliberal economics as causing this feminization of poverty where most low wage workers are women and especially women of color, migrant women, all around the world, like women are doing low paid work, undervalued work, and then they come home and do more work for free, <laughs> whether it's like childcare or senior care or even just the housework. Like I thought immediately of like migrant women here in the West who are doing like the labor of caring for upper class women's children so those women can work, like all these connections to poverty and how those are a lot of the people who take transit in our city and around the world. Thank you, Caitlin, for sharing what free and good public transit would mean in a feminist lens. We're grateful to be able to showcase such rad voices. Speaking of our amazing guests, we were super excited to feature a conversation around menstrual inequity with the film Pandora's Box, Lifting the Lid on Menstruation. We hear from filmmaker Rebecca Snow and co-founder and CEO of Diva International, Karine Chambersaney, talk about the global impacts of menstrual inequity. So the film is really hinged on just showing how menstrual equity kind of intersects with so many other injustices, um, particularly with youth, houseless people, women who are incarcerated, um, class and access also has a very big impact on menstrual inequity. So what does menstrual equity mean to you both? I think the term now there's there's a lot a lot of education to do to actually help people understand the importance of it, and why someone who can't bleed with dignity because they don't have access to products, why that is creating such a barrier for them. Even in Canada, 70% of menstruators have missed work or school um, because of their period. And the fact that you know one third of all Canadian women under the age of 25 have experienced period poverty and can't even access the, the products that they need. And then we look at in the film, the issues within the prison system where um, the, the lack of accessibility is actually used as a form of control and abuse. It's, it's all encompassing. There's many, many issues. And I think that's kind of where the name Pandora's box came from. It was like, once you opened the box and everything started unveiling a whole gamut of, of issues. While there were many challenging parts of this year, there were also many triumphs. We are very proud to announce that in November, the Adamant Eve team won multiple national campus and community radio awards. This year, Michelle Dang and Wen Chan were the recipients of the Breaking Barriers Award for their piece entitled Asian Representation. 
And Autumn Moranchuk was the recipient of the Best Sports Program Award for her piece on athletics and feminism. So uh, my question to Michelle, when and Autumn is how did it feel to create these pieces and to win these awards? I think for for me, it was kind of just um, it was kind of a surprise because uh, I didn't know that we were being considered for <laughs> these awards. So when Megan had emailed us um, that we had won or sorry, that we were even nominated, I, I was kind of just shocked. But yeah, I'm really grateful that, you know, people are listening to what we're putting out and that we're re- reaching people. Yeah, jumping off that, Michelle, like it's weird with radio, like you put it out there and you don't know who hears. So I agree. It was good to um, see it resonated with others. And that I think like we also couldn't have done it without everyone on the team too. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, like without Roseva, I wouldn't know like anything about radio. And then it was all a team effort. I remember like Lewis teaching me how to cut stuff um, when we were editing that. And with hosting, everyone contributed. So I'm just grateful for all of you. Yeah, jumping off of that, I, I definitely feel the same way. I, I feel like it was a team effort in a lot of ways. And I think I feel really like blessed and grateful to be a part of this team. I know definitely having an outlet for creativity during this kind of crazy year has been something that I just cherish so much. And yeah, it was the same for me where I didn't know that I had been nominated and I got like an email saying that I had been nominated, but I thought it was like a scam email. (laughs) I was like, I can't possibly be getting an award. What is this? Like, And then I got like a text message from Megan and she's like, oh, you actually did like win this award. So I was totally taken by surprise and just like really, really grateful, especially since um, having a background like in kinesiology and really loving sport, getting to win an award that melds both things together. My passion for feminism and my passion for sport just feels really special. So I'm really honored. Well, congratulations to Michelle, Wen, and Adam. That's that's very great news. And hopefully we get to uh, win more awards. For our final episode of the year, Rosiva had a conversation with master student Kim Barrett about a paper published in Nature Communications that is known and famous for its poor methodology and sexist conclusions. Rosiva and Kim used the paper entitled The Association Between Early Career Informal Mentorship in Academic Collaborations and Junior Author Performance as a jumping off point to discuss the importance of feminist mentorship within academia. Let's take a listen to our last clip of the show. I heard about this paper through uh, a lab mate, a postdoc in our lab, was had some pretty scathing thoughts about it, and rightfully so. They have some severe method, methodology issues, and their conclusions are really kind of wonky. So this paper is actually kind of blown up, so to speak, in the academic world, uh, specifically the science areas, because... It recently came out uh, and there's been a lot of questions about their interpretation of the results. So what they did is they were trying to figure out if they could find any links between success and and different correlates of success. So they were looking at how successful the mentors are, gender uh, is what they said they were looking at. Yeah, so it was gender and how successful the previous mentors were and they were correlating that with the success of their mentees. And they also, used AI to determine gender from names, which is not best practice for sure. Uh, but from all these kind of messy stats, they determined that, determined a couple of things, but the big one that everyone's talking about is they found that female mentors who took on female mentees 
had lower citation rates, so they were quote unquote less successful, and that their female mentees were also less successful if they were taken on by a female mentor. What a roller coaster of a year. That brings us to the end of this week's episode of Adam and Eve, Edmonton's only feminist news program. We produce this week's show in the studios of CJSRFM 88.5 in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada on Treaty 6 territory. We recognize that colonialism is ongoing and violent. We encourage you to reflect on your own relationship further and ask what accountability would look like here in practice for yourself, your community, and the larger systems that shape our access, opportunities, and life chances. Adam and Eve is a spoken word project of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton, Alberta, and our journalism is funded by you, the listeners. For more information on our program and to send us any feedback, please contact us on our Facebook page under Adam and Eve or tweet at us at Adam and Eve, all one word. We couldn't have um, gone through this year without you, our um, wonderful listeners. So thank you so much. I've been your host, Rose Eva Forks Jenkins. I've been Luis. I've been Autumn Mornchuk. I'm Wen Chan. And I'm Michelle Dang. Have a good day.